Uh, a parable is a story. And I, I tend to look at parables this way, and it's kind of, a, a, I think, a helpful little visual. If you, th- you think of an ear of corn, and you have the husk on the outside, and, and that husk kind of it, it covers and it protects the, the corn, the kernels on the inside. And you could say a parable is the husk. And within that husk, within that parable, are kernels of truth. And so Jesus told a lot of stories. And he wants you and I to look in these stories and see these kernels of truth. And so we want to do that this morning. This parable is in the midst of Matthew 25, which consists of three stories. Each makes a similar point about judgment. And the accumulative effect of the three is powerful in regard to how you and I live for eternity. Also interesting to note, this teaching is during Jesus' final life or final week here on earth, during his passion week, as we call it. It's given right before he left. And it's a story about some guys, given an opportunity, given an assignment, a master giving his servants a part to play, a master giving his servants a role to carry out. Now, some clarifications needed, if we want to just kind of make sure we understand context. In this parable, the master is God. You probably picked up on that, but just in case, this is a new parable to you. The servant, the slave, would be Jesus' follower. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the story. And then you see talents, the word talents. In New Testament, it's a unit of measure, a currency. Today, we think of talents more in the idea of skill or ability. In God's eyes, though, these things are a major factor. You could think of talents as money. You can certainly think of talents as spiritual gifts or physical abilities. Your house, your lawnmower, your time are all resources. They're all talents in that sense, things entrusted to us. But let's look at this parable and let's learn some things, first of all, about the Master, about God. We're told the first thing is His ownership. We're told in verse 14 and 18... That this man, this, this master went on a journey and he entrusted, and you might want to underline in verse 14, his possessions to them. They, they weren't the servant's possessions, they were the master's possessions. You see it in verse 18c, the end of the verse. He who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. In other words, God owns it. It was the master's possession, his ownership. And notice also that the possessions, the money, even the servants belonged to the master, and he had the right to do alone what he wished. This isn't an isolated truth just in this parable. Listen to some of the testimony of Scripture. I'll go Old and New Testament in case you just wonder if it's a New Testament thing. Leviticus 25.23 The land must not be sold permanently, God says, because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. To the Lord your God belongs the heaven, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Deuteronomy 10.14 The psalmist writes in Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
David in his prayer from 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 12 got it right when he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things and in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Job 41 God says to Job, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 50, every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I'd not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. The first prophetic voice after the Babylonian exile, Haggai gave encouragement and he said, revealed God's word by saying this, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19-20, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore honor God with your body. It's pretty clear, Scripture says, God owns it all. I wonder if anyone has a pencil. Bruce, you got a pencil I could borrow? Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it, Bruce. And uh, some of you out there going, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Uh, what right does he have to do that? I mean, good luck taking notes now, Bruce. Um, you're thinking that's someone else's pencil. You can't just go break it. But what if I told you, Earlier in service, I gave him that pencil. It's actually mine. Everything changes, doesn't it? Why? Because it's my pencil. I have the right to do with it what I want. And sometimes we approach God wrongly thinking that it's ours, when really it's God's. Search and you're not going to find a single verse that suggests that God has surrendered his ownership to us. He owns it all. And that's a searching question for you and I and ask, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Well, we're going to expound on that a little bit more. We're also told throughout this text of the Master's power. You could say the Master's authority. Throughout the text, the Master's will is authoritative. His decisions are final. And behind His words is ultimate power. And the text leaves no doubt as to the final authority. And as parents, you get that. In your home, you ask your child, hey, go do this, and they kind of lollygag, and they sit down and do something different. And you, what do you need to remind them? You need to remind them of who said it to them. I told you to do this. So what are you doing? You're saying, I have authority. And you, you better listen, because I also have the authority to lay out consequences too. And so you're exerting your power, your authority, and in this one, the Master is abundantly clear of His authority and His power. We're also told about the Master's trust. This amazes me in verse 15. And to one He gave five, to another two, and to another one, each according to His own ability, and He went on His journey. He delegated to His servants significant financial assets. He gave them authority, in a sense, over possessions, and He trusted it to them. And this indicates a level of trust in the ability to manage them. And the master chose to become dependent, really in a sense dependent upon the honesty and faithfulness of his servants. 
It really, to me, shows the willingness of our master to take risks. God involves us in what he's doing in our world. The risk of delegating responsibilities to people who may fail. These guys did nothing to earn this, this entrusting. They did nothing that we read to gain trust until after they've proved faithful. Then we read a little bit about that. You ever wonder the risk God takes in giving us things? I mean, think about it, what you have. I mean, God gave it to you and He, in a sense, trusted you to handle it properly. That's kind of sobering. But it speaks, this parable speaks to the Master's trust. It also speaks to His expectations. Verse 20, The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents. Master, you entrusted five talents to me. In other words, there's an expectation the servant had. And you see it again in verse 22. You entrusted to me. In other words, the master had specific expectations of his stewards. They might not have been easy, but they were fair. And he has every right to expect his stewards to do what he asked. He has every right to expect them to respond. And he expects the opportunity to be seized and to be invested. Servants knew of his standards, and they should not presume upon his grace by being lazy. Also note in this, and I always find it interesting, that the master didn't entrust the same amount. And think about that for a moment. God did not entrust to you and I the same amount. You have a different number of children probably than I do, maybe, or the person next to you. You have a different amount of income, different amount of gifts, Different types of abilities. They're not the same. They were never meant to be the same. They've been entrusted to you and I, and there's, with that entrustment comes an expectation from our Master. We also learn about His absence in verse 15, right away. He went on a journey. Master's gone for a season. The text says a long time. But because He's not physically present, there's still a relationship and consequently delayed accountability. And the test of each servant to see if his master's standards are maintained, even if he isn't there to give immediate reward or correction. That one's kind of convicting because we tend to think, you know, because we don't see God physically, then maybe we'll get away with it. Or because we don't see him, we kind of put it on a back shelf because after all, his coming's way down the road. Which I don't think it is, but... We tend to think that way. But we learn about the master's absence here. But we also learn about his return. The master will come back. That's actually the whole point of the parable in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Your community groups, you're going to get a chance to dig into that one a little bit more. It speaks about his return. It might be sooner, it might be later, but he could return at any moment. It's likely when it's unexpected. And, and I, I appreciate those songs that Jay picked and we sang about our king coming back. And we should always have that on our mind because he will return. We also learn about the master's generosity, verse 21 through 23. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And then we read again in verse 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful of few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come enjoy and come enter the joy of your master. Not only will this master 
entrust more to the servant who was faithful, but also allow that servant to come and enjoy the master's presence. In other words, that we have a gracious God. This master shows us generosity. And although he has the right to expect servants to do right, the master graciously promises reward and promotion to the servant who is faithful. The master gave praise. He said, well done. The master called the servant good and faithful. They were placed in charge of many things. We're told later in the parable that there would be more abundance possible. You and I learn that this master is generous. Our God is indeed good. So there's some lessons regarding our master, but there's also lessons regarding servants, the followers of Jesus. That would be you and I. The lessons are about how you and I handle money, how we handle possessions, how we handle our abilities. It demonstrates who we really believe is our true owner, God or us. Stewardship, living as stewards, is living in the light of these certain truths. Who owns it in your life? Is it yours or God's? Well, let's look at a couple things. One of the lessons is regarding stewardship. These servants recognized stewardship. All three seemed to be acutely aware that they were not owners. They all three seemed to be aware that they were not the masters of this thing. And it was the servant's job to take the assets entrusted to them and use the money wisely to care for and invest in the master's kingdom. You see, a servant who does not fully grasp the implications of God's ownership renders it impossible a proper exercise of stewardship. If you and I don't recognize that all that we have God owns, we won't be good stewards. We'll begin to kind of invest in our own little kingdom. The talents, the money, the spiritual gifts we have are from God. They're not self. You're not a self-made man. You and I have no right to thump our chest as if we somehow had the, uh, the means to conjure up all the things we have. The servants recognized their stewardship. They also recognized and faced accountability. Because they did not own these assets, the servants are accountable for those resources to the master. It's interesting, nowhere does the parable tell us they knew what each other got. I mean, the one who got five, we don't read that he knew what the one who got two was. And the one who got two didn't know what the one got one or the one who had five. They don't seem to know what each other got that, because that's not the point of the parable necessarily. The <clears throat> point of the parable is that each of those three would face accountability. The only one who knew what each one had was the master. They were accountable to him. They would stand before him one day. And the other servants' evaluations would have been useless anyways. Our evaluations of each other are useless. What does matter is one day we'll stand before Him. That's the one evaluation that matters. 1 Corinthians 4.2 Short and sweet. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That they be found faithful. That's what's required. Why? Because they'll face accountability. The servants had legitimate needs, and so do you and I. And our owner is generous. He doesn't demand that the stewards live in poverty. I don't think our master resents making reasonable expenditures. But suppose the owner sees his servants living in luxury, 
while ignoring the needs of those around them, ignoring His kingdom. And isn't there a point as God's steward we cross the line of reasonable expenditures? Isn't there a point as God's stewards where you and I need to really scrutinize and say, this isn't ours. God, where do you want us to put it? What do you want us to have? And won't the owner call us to account for squandering money that's not ours? It's his. I'm convinced God will not bless us if we're trying to build our own little kingdom. I don't think God will bless us when you and I refuse to invest in his kingdom because that's not good stewardship. You and I need to continually pray and ask God for wisdom to know how to invest his resources. And one of the reasons is because we and I are going to be held accountable for how we do it when our master returns. There's another lesson concerning his servants, and that is one of trustworthiness. The servants were not required to be elegant or educated or specially gifted. There's only one thing required of them, to be faithful, to be trustworthy. I'm glad about that. <laughs> I, I, I look at some people who are really talented, and I look at Jay who plays a gazillion instruments at one time, and, 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 I, and you look around and you see very uh, just incredible people with great minds and discernment, and you're like, wow, that's incredible. But God doesn't ask me to do those things. He just asks me to be faithful with what he's given me. And so you and I shouldn't be looking around comparing ourselves. We should just be saying, God, help me to be faithful with what you've entrusted to me. And you and I need to make sure we do that. Resignation, laziness, duplicity are not an option for God's servants. Only two of them please God. And you and I are to live like these two until he returns. The one was lazy. Interesting, too about this guy. We'll talk about him in a second, a little bit more. But another thing that we learn about being God's stewards, about servanthood, is these guys were resourceful. The servants were not told exactly what to do. They had to be creative. They had to work hard. They had to do well. They weren't to slack. The servants were to be intelligent, resourceful, risk takers, so as to multiply investments for who? For the master's kingdom. In his kingdom, investments that multiply are spiritual. And you see that in Matthew 25, 34 to 36. And the key really to the parable, if you really want to get a hold on the real key, spiritual investing is what is eternal. Live for those things. Live for those things. As one author once said, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Can't take it with us. So what are you going to invest and send ahead of you? what you and I sent ahead of us to glory and what, what will await us by way of reward and, and the well done of our, our master will be internal investments. That's what matters. But notice something else, the third servant. When it's his turn to give an account, instead of returning the entrusted talents right away as the other servants had, the servant gives a little speech. He did not praise the master for his generosity. He tried to justify by describing his master as hard. Interesting, he tries to justify his behavior by finding fault with the master's character. Boy, isn't that a dangerous road to take? In other words, he was in a sense saying, God, you're not really that good. You're a hard man. And he was probably mad at God. But he just buried it. He didn't do anything with it. 
And because he was afraid to take a risk, or lazy to even pursue one, he dug a hole in the ground and buried it. What did he do? He operated out of fear, not trust. He didn't operate out of confidence. Bottom line, he did not know his master's heart. The other two did. They were plugged in to what the master loved and what the master cared about. This guy didn't. And don't think for a moment the master would have been mad if the investment didn't seem to multiply. We read in this parable that the master is disappointed because he did nothing. That's what disappointment is. I mean, we could have read a whole different story if this guy would have invested in and, and, and maybe he didn't seemingly have fruit or something like, but he did nothing. Nothing. No eternal investment. No concern for the master's kingdom. He did nothing. He was not resourceful. We also read about the servant's state of readiness for the master's return. Like soldiers ready at any minute for barricade or for barrack inspection, these servants are constantly aware that the day could come of the master's return. And if they knew the time of his return, they could have wasted and tried to regroup right before he came. Maybe it's kind of how people think, isn't it? They're like, I'm going to have all the fun in the world when, when I get near the end of my life, then I'm going to kind of get things in order and I'll kind of I'll finish a little bit better. But some people never make it there. One of the questions I faced when I've talked to people about Jesus is they would say something along the lines of, you know what, when I, when I get later in my years, I'll give thought to that. One of the questions I say is, how are you going to know you're going to want to give thought to that? You presume upon the fact that you're going to have a heart that wants to respond to God in your later years. How do you know you're going to want that? You don't. There's no guarantee of the future. These servants communicate to you and I that they were ready, and there was a healthy fear, which is another one, lesson of the servants. They had a fear of the master, a healthy respect. Because the third servant did not know the master's heart, but the other two were aware of the master's instructions, his expectations, his standards were high, but he was fair. And if they invested according to the master's desires, they would fare well. They also knew if they were unfaithful, the master would be displeased. They were acutely aware of that. And this healthy fear motivated them to be good stewards. They also, these servants, speak to a single-minded service. You see, wise followers of Jesus, our master, resolve around service for the master. All side interests are brought into the orbit around this purpose to serve the master well. And oh my goodness, how hard this is. To put all the things in our life in this orbit around one thing, what's going to please our master God? What will please him? What will build up his kingdom? And might everything else be around it? But it seems like we tend to put a couple things in there that we, that we almost idols, that are too important to us, and God's somewhere out here, around here, somewhere. And we get it all backwards. And might this parable challenge you and I towards a life of single-minded service? There are some overall lessons here that we need to grab a hold of. There's several, but we're going to grab just a couple because that's enough <laughs> for us to try to work with. This thing was going to come sooner or later. All right. I wasn't going to try to break that. Um, <clears throat> number one, what's the long-term? There is a long-term significance of today's behavior and choices. We need to know that. 
There's a long-term significance of today's behavior and choices. How we handle the gifts, talents, money, resources in our daily life has tremendous bearing on this. It has tremendous bearing on eternal realities. It's that idea of the law of eternal harvest. A man reaps what he sows. Do you believe this? Do you believe that your giving matters? The Bible talks about this thing called the tithe. And this discipline introduced in the Old Testament had a really a key principle behind it is when we tithe, we recognize God's full ownership. A tithe is not helping the church out. A tithe is not helping God out. God doesn't need our help. A tithe is recognizing God's ownership over everything. It's an act of worship, of giving back to God which He's entrusted us. It's how we honor our Master, our God. And really, if you looked at the Bible and its whole teaching of tithing, it's really the training wheels of giving. It starts here. It doesn't end there. You and I have been entrusted with God's resources. My question for you is, are you honoring Him with them? Another lesson is our responsibility to step out and invest for His kingdom. In verse 16, we're told that these servants traded. It's this idea of investing, to deal, to work. Requires action, requires risk, requires stepping out in faith. Consistently looking to invest our time, our resources for His kingdom. Because it's not about our kingdom and our private little world, it's about His kingdom. Some of us may be burying resources God's entrusted to us. And when we do that, they'll bear no eternal benefits or rewards. Don't try to bottle your life up so as you hang on to everything. As if it, all co- if it all counts for something. It doesn't. You and I are to invest in God's kingdom and that has eternal value and eternal benefits. Unwise and wise, we're told, were two words that emerged. The unwise one was lazy, uninvolved in investing in God's kingdom, but the wise, servant, or wise servants were highly motivated. They were diligent. They lived life with their guns ablazing till the master would return. And it is a risk to serve in uncomfortable ways. I understand that. It's a risk that seems to tithe when you still have bills. And I know it's a risk to give when you're not sure about your finances. I know it seems risky to give to a kingdom endeavor when you don't seem to have control over what's going to happen. I'm convinced of something. I'm convinced that when people stand before God, God would never say to us, you know what, you shouldn't have given so much. I don't think we'll ever hear those words. Instead, I think we'll hear, well done. You, you lived your life with guns ablazing for me. And, and might that be the way we all live, because we have a responsibility to step out and invest for His kingdom. Another lesson I find is our focus should be on responsibilities, not rights. We forget or we're unaware as servants our rights are limited by our lack of ownership. Instead, we manage our master's resources for his pleasure. Somewhere along the line, we thought we had rights. It's not ours. We have a responsibility, and there's a big difference. We carry no sense of entitlement. It's our job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets. And the moment we begin to think we deserve what we have, we begin to focus on what we deserve or think the Master owes us. And when we do that, we lose perspective. And our service will deteriorate. And it will deteriorate rapidly. 
Many people in our world stress. And one of the reasons they stress is because they think they own it. And they think God owes them. And they think they have rights. Isn't it amazing God doesn't want us to stress? And isn't it a gracious thing that he's the owner, not us? And if we recognize that, maybe we wouldn't stress. (laughs) And so it's like God knows what he's doing. And he says, it's mine. If you would just acknowledge that, you won't have to worry about stress. Because it's mine. And, and so there's a mindset there when we adapt that it frees us from all the things that seemingly attack us and bombard us. You could almost say this way, not giving is never a financial solution. Not giving is a source of problems because you and I have been called to invest in his kingdom. I think there's another lesson for us that would be helpful if we grabbed a hold of, and that's the meaninglessness of everyone else's evaluation. This principle is critical. Everyone else's evaluation is meaningless compared to the judgment of the one and only Master. In the day we stand before God, it won't matter how many people knew your name, it won't matter how many people called you great or fools, whether you had a big house or not, how many cars you had, that won't matter. What will matter is one and only one thing, and that's what the Master thinks. That ought to be our focus. In the day in and day out, what does our Master think? You have as a next step on the, the bottom of your bulletin um, a chance of application. And we thought that with this time of year, this is a good time to bring this up. Some of you are familiar with this faith-giving uh, concept that's happened over the years. Um, and that is people would, would come before God and ask God, what do you want me to commit to for this next year? Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to go home this week. Bow before your master and by faith say, God, what is it you want me to commit to this next year? And I would suggest starting with a tithe and go from there and say, God, what is it? And make a commitment. To some of you, this is new and this might be kind of scary because you're like, Matt, you don't understand how many bills I have. And, and, And I would say, you're right, I don't. But God does. And he rewards giving clearly rewards faithfulness. So I'm going to ask you to do a hard thing, to take a step, a commitment, and say, God, I want to trust you. To, I want to be faithful. And maybe you've had a discipline of giving 10%, and I think that's incredible. But maybe as you bow this week, God will say, how about 12? Or maybe God will say, hey, I want you to keep giving the 10, but I'd like you to give $50 a month towards the need that you see as a coworker or somebody around you I'll let you know what it is, but I want you to set aside $50 for that. Teenagers, children, children, you might get an allowance. Maybe God wants you to learn at a young age to commit. And you might say, I only got a dollar to give. Remember, one person only got one talent here. But God rewarded just as much as the one who had more. And so if you have 50 cents that you think God wants you to give each week, or give it. You be faithful. So this isn't just an adult thing. Young adults and children, you're stewards as well. And so might we all learn that. So I'm asking you to sit down and pray. Come next week. Uh, If you have a mailbox, you'll find a a letter and and some envelopes you can use to to put your commitment. You'll see a little card there. If you don't have them, there's some out in the foyer there on a little table. And if you're not sure where they're at, ask one of the ushers. They'll make sure they grab one for you. And that you can take home and pray over. And it would be great if uh, we were able to come as an offering before the Lord next week 
because we've all sought God and said, God, how can we be more faithful this coming year? I think that's always a good prayer. And so might we all take that next step because we have a God, a master who's gracious and he calls you and I to be faithful stewards. Let's pray. Lord, I I know uh, sometime as I am with my brothers and sisters here, it's not always so clear cut. Um, We approach some things in life and wonder whether that is a good purchase or whether the car for $1,000 more is is what we should get. Um, And Lord, we weigh with some important decisions. and, And what I'm grateful, Lord, is for your Holy Spirit because we have those moments we can listen We can trust your leading. We can trust it because we know you own it and that you don't want us to be foolish. You want us to be wise. But I believe, Lord, before we even get to that concept of the day-to-day stewardship, we need your spirit to sink deep within our spirit. The deep conviction all we have and all we ever will is from you. We never earned it. We don't have the right to it. You don't owe us anything. And if we were really, really honest, what we really deserve is hell. But you've been so good to us. You've died to save us. You've rose to purchase our salvation and give us hope for eternal life. And as we walk this earth, God, you've entrusted to us resources, not for ourselves, but we could be involved in something that's eternal. That we could live forever with your joy. We could live forever looking at people's lives that our investment touched. How great is that, God? That we have that eternal hope of that. Our investments really matter, God. And they'll really last. So God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the challenges. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the promises in it. Might we not leave this here, but might as we go about this week, might your spirit speak to us. Might there be clarity. Might our hearts be open to what it is you want to say to us. Personally and corporately, God, we want to be faithful. Might you find us faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.